I'm going to ask you to take your Bible back to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. We're actually going to do something a little unusual this morning. We're going to, to read a number of texts together that I want to set before us that I think will help us as we come back to our series on winning the war for our soul. The series we're doing out of Ephesians chapter 6 beginning in verse 10 and going through the end of the chapter on spiritual warfare. We've looked at that text before. Let me read verses 10 through 13 with you together. Paul says, finally, and we noted that the word finally there is not Paul just saying, okay, we're just wrapping up now. I've I've said everything I really wanted to say to you, so I'm now bringing sort of the letter to a close, and I have a few things that I've sort of been saving for the concluding comments, but everything... I've been really wanting to say to you, I've already said. That's not the idea behind the word finally here. The word finally here is the most climactic moment in the letter. Paul is saying, this is where I have been going. What I'm about to tell you is the most significant thing that I want you to think about as I wrap up these six chapters together. So finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand. Now, I've read that text to you this morning out of the New American Standard. I'm preaching out of the ESV, which is the Bible I normally preach out of. But the reason I wanted to read it out of the New American Standard this morning is that there's a little way that Paul talks about things at the very end of the verse, and I don't want you to miss it. He says this, Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. Not the idea of just this is a possibility and maybe this will happen. The idea there is Paul is wanting you to see the certainty of what he's saying. You will be able to do this. We read earlier in our service this morning as Pastor Mike led us through our scripture reading, Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. We're going to spend some time in that text together. But let me read you a few more texts and I'll just give you the references and you can listen or you can turn in your Bible if you wish. Isaiah 59, verses 16 through 20, speaking of God, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render payment, so that they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west." And his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Here's another text, Isaiah 42, 13. 
The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. One of my favorite passages, 2 Chronicles 32, 7 through 8, where God says to Hezekiah and to the armies that are facing a massive Assyrian force, God says to them, be strong and be courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And then who cannot remember and take comfort from Romans 8:37 not know in all these things Paul said we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and earlier in verse 31 if God is for us who can be against us we have been come now uh, to that section in Ephesians chapter 6 where we are being reminded and for some of us introduced to a massive spiritual conflict in which the entire universe is engaged. And we are right in the center of that conflict. And that's what Paul is driving home to you and to me this morning. We are, whether we realize it or not, right in the center of a massive spiritual conflict And I want us, as we come to the text this morning, before we actually look at the individual pieces of the armor, I want us to make sure that we understand what is behind the conflict. And I want to correct, at least in our thinking, particularly in mine, three misconceptions that often come to our thinking as we think about the idea of a spiritual war that we're in. So as we think about this conflict, what is the conflict about? You know, when when two nations go to war, they are typically going to war over something. Sometimes the war can be so long and it can get so broad that people lose sight of the original offense. So what is it that caused the war? What is it that, that is behind this war. I mean, we know that on the one side, God has marshaled his forces, and on the other side, just like we read in, sec, or in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, there are massive spiritual enemies of God that have come together under the leadership of Satan, the God of this world. But what is it that the conflict is over? And I would suggest to you this morning that understanding that is essential. Because if we don't know why the battle is going on and what is really happening, we are going to be frustrated at certain points along the way when things happen in our arena of the battle. So what is this battle all about? So let me, let me maybe lead you there instead of tell you. Go to Ephesians chapter 1 and let me introduce you to something that is very important to the Apostle Paul that he wants us to know. Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse 2. Paul says this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So right away, you are introduced to the grace of God that has come into your life, 
and brought about something from God that has been extended to you through the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's peace. You say, well, Paul always began his letters that way, and that's true, but go to the end of the book, and let me show you another text. Look at verse 23 of chapter 6. This is how Paul ends this wonderful letter. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So at the front end of the book and the back end of the book, Paul says to you, I want you to have in mind a peace that God has given you and that you are to maintain with one another. There is a peace that God has given to you and and it is one that you are to maintain with one another. Now, this is not a new idea. In fact, this peace was predicted way back in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 and 7. You remember that verse that we quote all the time and that we sort of trot out at Christmas time? Well, this is not intended to be our Christmas verse. This is intended to give you a prediction of someone that God is going to send who is going to do something. For us, for to us, a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace a leader who is marked by peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And how will this reign of peace be instigated? The zeal, the idea there is the wrath, The wrath of the Lord of armies. That's the idea behind the word hosts. The wrath of the Lord of armies will bring this about, will do this. We saw in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, that this peace had a cosmic, universal aspect. And we we read that in verse 9 and 10 when Paul said to us, Now I want you to know that God has given to me a revelation about something that he is doing in heaven and on earth through the Messiah. And what he is doing is he is regathering everything. He is reuniting everything. He is bringing everything on earth and everything in heaven back to its original state when he first created it. And he looked at it and he said, this is good. This is shalom. We read in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, the incredible means by which God established this peace through Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Listen to the text in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Why? So that he might create in himself, notice creation language there, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And in verses 17 and through 19 of chapter 2, this peace was preached by this Messiah who made it to those who were near that was to the Jewish nation, and to those who were far off, that's the Gentiles, that's us. 
And we were drawn in so that we are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In chapter 3, verse 10, we saw that this shalom that Christ has made and extended to us, that has made us part of the household of God, is intended through us to display God's ability to one day bring all of that shalom to the earth. And in chapter 3, verse 10, we read that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's like God is saying, I am going to bring about shalom in the universe. And here is the first evidence of it. And he takes that first evidence, that's us, and he holds it up from the throne of heaven so that the entire universe can see it, but he is especially wanting the enemies of that peace to behold it. And we noted last week when we were together that this is not unusual. This is exactly what we read in Job 1 and 2, where all of a sudden God takes one of his faithful servants and he holds them up, and in the presence of all of the created beings of the universe, he looks at the enemy of God, and he says, now have you considered my servant Job? And Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, that that's exactly what God is doing with us as a church. He is holding us up, and he is looking at this immense force of wickedness that is being led by the enemy of God, Satan himself. And he is saying, I want you to consider, I want you to look, and I want you to see my servants, the church. And he's displaying through that his amazing wisdom and his power and his grace. And because of that, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we who are the display of that peace are told to guard the unity that God has given to us, that he created for us, that he extended to us, that he made for us in chapter 2. We are to guide it, or to guard it rather, and, and to work hard to be zealous over it so that we hold it together with the bond, the mortar of peace. When you build a wall or you build a building and you use blocks or bricks, you put those bricks together and there's something that holds that entire wall together that holds all of those bricks together and it's mortar. And in chapter 2, Paul said, look, this display, this church, these people of God, they are actually a building, a temple that God is building, and he's building them out of living stones, and the mortar that's going to hold all of that together, all of this unity together, is peace. That's why in chapter 4, verse 3, we are exhorted to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then in chapter 6, verse 15... We are to, as Paul did, put on the shoes of the gospel and be eager to proclaim this peace to everyone. So as we display its stunning beauty and we protect and guard it in our lives, Paul wants you to know that there is an enemy of God who is looking at all of this and he is marshalling every spiritual force available to him to come and shatter the peace collectively in the church and personally in your life. That's why you're under attack. You're under attack because of what God is displaying for his glory in the universe. Now, does this make sense to you? 
Are we tracking this together? That, that's why I wanted to maybe take the time to kind of walk you through what Paul is actually saying and the central place that Shalom has in this idea that Paul is presenting to you in the book of Ephesians. And as you go into this and as you think about what Satan is doing to come against the church at large, our church in particular, and your life individually, Paul wants you to know there is a strength that God has given you and there is an armor that God has provided for you by which you can withstand anything that Satan throws at you to try to destroy the shalom that is in your life personally, in your relationships as a church collectively, and in the body of Christ at large. There is a strength and there is an armor that God has provided. That's why he comes to chapter 6, verse 10, and he says to you, finally, this is the main idea that he is trying to give you. Now, I told you there are some misconceptions. So let me give you three common misconceptions that we have when it comes to this whole idea of spiritual warfare that goes on. Number one, misconception number one. You ready? Misconception number one. The war that we're in, even though it's real, is far away and distant. It's far away and distant. It's sort of like out of sight, out of mind. We know we're at war. We know there's an army that is, at, you know, that is fighting against us collectively as a church. And we know that there are actually people who are under attack today, and some of them are actually being killed as martyrs for the faith, but that's happening way far away from where we are. That is not really going on anywhere near Powdersville, South Carolina. That's going on in the remote corners of the earth where there's still a lot of darkness going on. And so we know about the battle. We're praying for those people that are sort of way out there, but we don't think of ourselves as on the front lines of that battle. It's out of mind or out of sight, out of mind. And there are things in this text that Paul puts there to sort of strip that misconception out of our thinking. Let me give you a couple of them. The imperatives. I mean, Paul is not just talking. He, it's like Paul is standing in front of you and the enemy is encroaching and Paul is saying to you, now I want you to look me in the eye. I want you to give me both of your eyeballs and I want to tell you exactly what you need to do. And he lays out the imperatives of this text. You need to be strengthened with something. You need to take up this armor. You need to see what is going on around you. So Paul brings an intensity to the language that if you could sense it and feel it, you would get this impression. There is something evil going on around us and we're in danger. That's the idea that Paul is trying to weave in with the language that he is using. They stress urgency and immediacy. And then he talks about the word wrestle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The enemies that we wrestle against are are spiritual forces, but but we're wrestling. And the word wrestle there is the word for hand-to-hand combat. It's the idea that Two battles, or a battle is being fought, and two armies have come together on that battlefield, and and they're not fighting the battle from the other ends of the field. In our day and age, it's not like we're sitting behind a bunker and we're launching missiles across oceans, 
or we're flying over and we're dropping bombs on enemy locations below. The idea is that we landed the plane, we got out of the plane, and we went right over to where the enemy is, and that enemy has come against us, and we are locked in hand-to-hand combat. That's the idea that Paul wants you to see. So if you have the idea that, yeah, we're in a battle and it's going on and I know it's serious and the enemy is real and he's wicked and everything Paul says is true, but it's really not something I have to worry about right now because it's happening far away and and it's nowhere near my life. The answer that Paul wants you to say is you have not understood my language. This battle is very real and it is going on in your life right now. Misconception number two, the enemy is innocuous or he's occupied with other things in other places and somehow I have escaped his notice. We could say it this way, we have this idea that the enemy sort of bumbles around and is easily distracted and if we just sort of go, nothing to see here, he just kind of muddles along and finds some other place to go and the answer is no, that is not at all what Paul is wanting you to see. In fact, he says it this way, and he's not doing this to scare you. This is not, the, 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 if you walk away and you're afraid, that you missed what Paul's doing. The, the intent here is not to get you to be afraid, but he wants you to see the reality of what's going on around you. Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And Paul had a good friend named Peter who said, if you want a picture of what this enemy is like in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he is exactly like this. He is like an enraged lion who is rolling around and he is roaring because he has spotted his prey and you're it. He is looking to devour you. He is looking to ravage you. And so that's misconception number two, that the enemy is innocuous or occupied with other things and we really don't have anything to be afraid of right now or to worry about. Misconception number three is this, we are stuck on an outpost somewhere by ourselves. The general's back in headquarters, the rest of the army's somewhere else, and we're sort of stuck on, uh, on on a hill somewhere by ourselves. And we're supposed to figure out how to use this weaponry. It's, it's piled up over here, and I'm not quite sure how it works, but I know that that's all I got, and I'm, I'm standing here by myself, and I've got all this enemy coming at me, and I'm not quite sure I, I know how to use that stuff, but if I could just figure out how to use the armor, then I might have a chance at surviving. And that is, again, not at all what Paul has in mind. Uh, he, he says it this way, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. That's not, that, that's not the idea that Paul has in mind, that there's this pile of armor and you got to go figure out, you got to sort out the pieces and sort of dust them off and figure out how to strap them on and then figure out how to activate them so that they work. Paul says, you be strengthened with a different kind of strength. You be strengthened with the strength of the Lord. And then It's interesting that when he says you in these verses, beginning in verse 10 and going all the way to verse 13, we don't see it in the text because we're not used to talking this way, but he's actually talking in the plural. When he says you, he's not talking to you by yourself. He's talking to you, us, that we are to do this collectively so we're not alone on the hill. 
We are there with a massive army of other believers that God has raised up with us. And it's also contrary to the express promise of God. If God be for us, who can be against us? Remember I told you about this pile of armor over here? It, you know, we read Ephesians chapter 6, and beginning in verse 14, we read about these six pieces of armor, and they're sort of hanging on a Roman soldier, and we're looking at them, and then we look over on our hill, and there's a pile over here, and there's a shield and sword and, and a belt and a breastplate, and we got to figure out how to strap them on. And it's very easy to get that impression when you read chapter 6, verse 14 and following, but that is not what Paul has in mind when he talks to us about wearing the armor. And I said to you last week, and I want to make sure you caught it, this armor is actually being worn, and it's not a Roman soldier that's wearing the armor. It's actually God himself. If you have a pen, I want you to write down these texts. We won't look at them all at once today, but we're going to go to these texts throughout our series. But that belt of truth in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5, God is wearing that. The breastplate of righteousness and in the helmet of salvation in Isaiah 59, 17, God is wearing that. The shoes of gospel peace that are described here in chapter 6 in Isaiah 52, 7, God is wearing those shoes. The shield of faith that we read about in Genesis 15, 1, God says to Abraham, I am your shield. In Deuteronomy 32, 9 and Psalm 33, 20, God is the shield. And the sword that we read about there in uh, chapter 6 in Isaiah 49.2 and in Deuteronomy 32.9, God is that sword. God is wearing and using that sword. So when we read about this armor that seems piled up for us in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is actually wanting us to go back to the Old Testament to see a mighty champion that God has raised up, who is actually doing the fighting for us and with us. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, who is this champion and how does he do this? So let's begin by asking the question, what does God do for us when he wears this armor? And the answer is, he fights. He fights for us. Let me give you some texts that speak to this. In Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. 1 John 4.4, little children, you are from God and have overcome. For he who is in you is greater than he who is where? In the world. So scripture will tell you that there is a God the true God of heaven, who wears this armor, and the reason he wears this armor is because he is fighting the battles for his people. This is what Scripture says directly, Deuteronomy 3.22. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Second Chronicles 32.8. With us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. You say, well, how does God fight our battles? And And the scripture reveals that God is the leader, he is the captain, he is the general of a massive army. In fact, that's what his name means. When you read in your Bible, the Lord of hosts, that title occurs more than 200 times in the Old Testament, and it literally means this, he is the Lord of armies. 
So who are these armies and where are they located? I mean, if God has armies that he is using, who are the armies and where are they located? Well, one of the armies is a spiritual army in the heavenly realm. They are angels who fight for God's people. I mean, we don't normally think about angels, do we? But let me just give you some thought about that. When God goes to fight for you, he takes an army with him. And the army is described as angels who are divine warriors in Deuteronomy 32, uh, 33, 2, and in Psalm 68, 17. And in Jude 14, we read that when God appears, he appears with myriads. That's the idea of millions of, of mighty warriors who are his angels. They are myriad in number. Hebrews eleven twenty two and Revelation 5, 11. They are mighty in power and in strength. Psalm 103, verse 20, they fight for the Lord against his enemies. Revelation 12, verses 7 through 8, talks about a battle that is going on in heaven. And Michael, the archangel, is leading the angelic forces, and they are locked in combat against the dragon and his angels. This isn't like a pretend battle. This is actually going on in heaven and on earth. Those angels at times come and they war for God's people. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, there is an angel that comes to Daniel and he says to Daniel, I'm sorry that I wasn't able to get here earlier. As soon as you prayed asking God for the vision, I was, I was dispatched to give that vision to you, but I was hindered on the way by an enemy. And if Michael hadn't come to fight with me, I would have been overcome. So we have these texts in Scripture that talk about the Lord and a massive army of spiritual beings that are available to him. And and in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews says, now all of these angels have a mission, and their mission is to serve those people who have been called to salvation. I mean, if you haven't made this connection, let me make it to you. There is a mighty army in heaven, and God is using that army to defend you. That's exactly what we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. You say, well, are there any examples of this? Yes, in 2 Kings 6, 17, Elisha takes his servant, his little servant out, and and all of a sudden God opens the eyes of that little servant and he has been looking at the the spears and the swords and the shields and the little campfires of the soldiers from the king and all of a sudden he looks just above and he sees the hills and they are ablaze with light. And it's the angelic army of God. Israel in 2 Chronicles with, uh, with Hezekiah are facing the king of Assyria and it is a massive army against them. There is no hope for them. And God says to Hezekiah, now you go and talk to the people and Hezekiah says, hey, there are more with us than with them. They just have the arm of the flesh. We have the mighty arm of God. Well, who were the more that were with these little puny forces of Hezekiah? Well, you keep reading in the next morning There is an angel, one angel, who shows up in the Assyrian army. And by the time that angel is done, that army has turned tail and they're running as fast as they can back to Assyria. One angel. 
And God did this. There was an angel who came to protect Daniel and he shut the mouth of lions in Daniel chapter 6 verse 22. And then there was an angel that came to Peter and delivered him from a sentence of death in prison in Acts chapter 12 verses 7 through 11. These angels make up a mighty army of God and God is using that army to fight your battles. And these angels will one day appear with Christ as a mighty army in 2 Thessalonians 1.7 in Revelation 19.11 and in Jude 14. Our Lord will appear and with him will be his mighty angels. So there is a spiritual army in the heavenly realms and then there is a spiritual army in the earthly realm and that army is his redeemed people. Israel in the Old Testament and now us in the new. We are his army. There were angelic Creatures that came and fought at times on God's behalf for God's people. But at the end of the day, God often used his own physical army on earth, Israel and now us, in the battle. And it wasn't the strength of their numbers or the might of their arm. Let me give you one example of this. Do you remember the story in Judges chapter 7 of Gideon who came up against the mighty army, the mighty numerous army of the Midianites? And he's terrified. And God says, okay, now, before you go out to battle, you and I are going to have a chat, and, and here's what I want you to know. You have way too many soldiers. Can you imagine Gideon here? I, I, I'm thinking Gideon's thinking, there's going to be more people coming. God's going to, like, send recruits from all over. And God's like, no, 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 no. You have way too many people coming. And I can imagine Gideon in his mind going, God, I know you're omniscient. I know you see everything, but have you looked out to that army out there? Did, did you get an accurate count of how many are out there? Because I don't think we have too many. In fact, I think just the opposite. And so, so you know, Gideon sends, you know, half the army home. And, uh, and God says, hey, Gideon, hey, no, no, look, let me just, one more thing. There's still too many. You still have too many. And by the time it's all said and done, how many does Gideon have? He's got 300 against tens of thousands of soldiers. I mean, this isn't just going to be hard. This is impossible. But how did the story end? You know the story. You know how it ended. You know, sometimes we look at our little human gathering here a couple hundred people in a building like this and we wonder man how in the world are we going to stand and God says no 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 when the enemy comes against you personally or when he comes against you collectively you will stand so how how okay so if the first question was what does God do he fights for us the second question is how how does God do this and the answer is he does it through a divine champion he does it through a, a divine champion so this is not unusual. I mean, think about it this way. You remember in the Old Testament, the army of God had gathered together against the Philistines. And King Saul is sitting up on the hill and his army's like all down here in the valley. I've actually been to Israel. I've been to that valley. And then the armies of the Philistines are on the other side of that valley and it looks absolutely hopeless. 
And, and as we're reading the story, we're watching this little young lad come skipping through the, the trees and he's kind of like rolling down the mountain and he gets there and he's like, so, hey, what's going on? I brought some cheese. I brought some bread from dad. What's happening? What's, where's the action? And everybody's like, would you shut up? I know you're not supposed to say that. That's probably in the Hebrew. Would you be quiet? And the next thing you know comes this shout from across the valley and this monster, this man mountain comes out there and he shames Israel. And David's like, this is going to be good. And he looks at his older brother's like, what are you going to do about it? His brother's like, what do you mean what are we going to do about it? You came here out of the pride and arrogance of your heart. You need to go back to dad. That was like a non-answer. And by the end of that story, Who's out there on that battlefield against this man mountain? David. God rose up a champion. He raised up a champion. And and this, this David goes out and he faces Goliath for the entire army. And by the way, we have a champion just like that. David had a son. A greater son. And you can see it. Go to 11 of a chapter Isaiah. Go to Isaiah 11 And I want you to see this. Where is this champion? And the answer is, he will come from the stump of Jesse. He will be a branch from the house of David. This, whoever this champion is, he comes out of the same lineage as that young shepherd boy who stood in front of Goliath. His name is Jesus. His identity is Jesus is he comes from the house of Jesse and and he is a branch of Jesse's line. And in Isaiah 9, what we just read earlier, he will sit on the throne of David. So he comes out of David's line. And and what what is so unusual about this champion is found in verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The idea is there he will be clothed with the spirit of the Lord. And the Spirit of the Lord is the secret to everything that happens next. The Spirit of the Lord gives to this champion remarkable wisdom and understanding. He will have insight into truth about what the enemy is up to and about what people are up to. Satan's main tactic is deception. This champion will have unusual insight and knowledge and wisdom. He will have amazing counsel and might. The word counsel is the idea for strategy. When he faces God's enemy, he will have the right strategy, and then he will know how and have the strength to execute it. Satan has schemes that we read about in chapter 6. This champion knows exactly what those schemes are, and he will have the right answer to every one of the schemes and the strength to carry them out. And then he will be marked by an intimate knowledge and reverent devotion to God. The spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and here's what it will produce. He will be marked by a delight in the Lord. Like Abraham of old, this champion will be the true friend of God. And here's what his conduct and his character will be like. With righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit. He will kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt of his weight 
and faithfulness, that's an Old Testament term for truth, will be the belt of his loins. He will be marked by justice and righteousness and faithfulness. And his mission, his mission will be to change everything. To bring shalom, to bring Eden back. Listen to how it's talked about in chapter six or chapter 11, verse 6. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, the nations, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place will be glorious. Who is that? Who is this warrior? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus. He is the root of of Jesse. He's the branch of David's house. So when did this champion fight for us? When did he do this? Because it's one thing to read about a champion and it's awesome and it's another thing to know who the champion is and it's stunning when we realize it's Jesus, but when did he fight for us? And you know the answer to that is in Ephesians chapter 2. Go to Ephesians 2. And you'll see where the battle was. This battle that, uh, that we're talking about is, is a battle that has already been fought. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, there's the champion, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay, wait a minute. Blood has been spilt in this battle. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So this war has been won. How? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in him one new man in place of the two. So making peace. So one of the arenas of battle had to do with the law of God and our champion stood there and he fought that battle and he won it with a perfect obedience to God, a perfect righteousness to God. And then notice the second arena of the battle is is in the next line, verse 16, so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. That's where the other arena of battle was. It wasn't just that he won our righteousness for us. He won our justification. He won our forgiveness, the remission of our sins, the adoption of us into the family of God. He won that by dying for us on the cross. That is where the war was fought. And that is where the war was won. So how does this champion fight for us? He fights for us through his obedient life and his sacrificial, vicarious death for you. And when Paul says, put on the armor of God, that's what he's talking about. You take the obedience that Christ 
has rendered for you and you take the death that Christ died for you and you strap that armor on and no matter what Satan throws at you, that's the armor that will defend you because it is already defeated permanently and in a very public and powerful way, the enemy of your soul. That's why in Colossians 1, Paul says, I want you to know what happened on that cross God put his enemies to open shame. He publicly triumphed over them. You say, when did that happen? It happened on the morning of the third day. It happened on the morning of the third day. When all of a sudden, up from that grave, a champion arose. And there is no doubt in heaven who the champion is. There's no doubt in heaven what he won. And that's why when the enemy of your soul stands in front of God's throne and points to you and says, see, see what they just did. See the thing they just said. See the thing that guy just did. See what she just didn't do. I mean, how can you say they're righteous? And God says to Satan, I want you to listen to the words of their advocate. Jesus steps forward and he presents a perfect righteousness and he says, this is the righteousness they're wearing. Not the little play righteousness that's so easy for you to throw down. This is their real righteousness. And it is secure in my hand because I am the one who made that righteousness and I am the one who imputed that righteousness to them and I am the one who holds that righteousness and nothing that Satan can say or do will ever knock that righteousness off. That's why Paul can say to you, you are accepted in the beloved. And that brings me to the final thing and that is this. Why does God fight for his people? And there's a lot of ways we can answer that. We could say God fights for his people because he's got this master plan that he's you know, doing. He's displaying shalom in heaven that's one day going to come to the earth, and that's true. Ephesians 1, 9-10 talks about that. We could say he does this for the preservation and the protection of his precious people, and we would say Paul makes that case in Romans 8, 37-39. We can say God does this, like we just said, for the public defeat of his enemies. In Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I mean, we could say that, you know, this is a reason, and, it's, and it is a reason. We could say he does it for the praise of God's glory. Ephesians 1, 6 and 12 and 14 would all say that. But I want to leave you with one Big reason. God fights for you. Because you are in His Son. You are in His Son. In chapter 1, verse 3, God has given us all spiritual blessings in Christ. In verse 4 of chapter 1, we were chosen in Christ. In chapter 1, verse 7, we have redemption in Christ. In verse 11, we have an inheritance in Christ. And in verse 13, we are sealed by the Spirit because we are in Christ. We have been raised up with Christ and are seated with Him in heavenly places. And in Him, we have been made members of God's household and we are being built up as His holy temple. 
So why does God fight for you? Because you are in his son. Theologians have a little term they use for this. It's called union with Christ. And I need a simple way to think about that. So when I think about union with Christ, I I think about it this way. It is a permanent association that God has made for me where he joins me in a very real way to his son so that whatever happens to his son happens to me and whatever happens to me happens to his son. The closest thing we have to describe this is what really happens when two people get married. In the eyes of the law, in the eyes of society, and in their own experience, they become so joined together that what happens to the one happens to the other. That's why when you go after somebody's husband, their wife generally comes after you. Or you go after somebody's wife, their husband generally comes after you. Why? Because what you do to one, you do to the other. Why? Because they are one. They are one flesh. And Paul is wanting you to understand that when you became a Christian, when God called you to salvation, it's not like he just said, okay, you're forgiven, be warmed and filled, go live the rest of your life. He put you together in an indissolvable union with his son and everything that he is going to do for his son, he's now going to do for you. He's going to give his son the earth to rule over. Guess what? You're going to reign with his son over that earth. You're going to inherit the earth. Everything that God the Father is doing for his son, he is doing for you. Everything that he feels for his son, he feels for you. Why? Because you have been united in an indissolvable union with his son. And the flip side of that is that when somebody comes against you, it's like coming against his son. That's why Jesus could say to people, look, when you give somebody a cup of cold water, you're doing it to me. And when Satan comes against you with an attack that you don't think you can bear, your partner, Jesus Christ, who wears this amazing army, comes and he stands with you and he says, I've already fought this battle and here's what we're going to do. We're going to look to my righteousness. We're going to look to my strength. We're going to look to God's favor on you and that's going to be the truth that we hold up against any defeat that Satan wants to hand you. And you say, well, man, I just, I just got knocked down and Jesus comes along and he says, well, not in heaven you didn't. You stand next to me. You're seated with me in in heaven. So let's pick you up. Let's dust you off. Let's make whatever we need to do to, to correct this, whatever repentance needs to happen. But your standing, the standing that matters in heaven was not touched by this. So he says, see, God's abandoned you. God's forgotten you. God will never forgive that. You might as well just Accept the fact that that the only reason God saved you is because he had to, because you prayed the prayer. It's like, oh, he prayed the prayer. I got to save him. But hopefully he'll sit in the back row and keep quiet. That's what Satan wants you to think. And the answer is, no, 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 no. Jesus comes and says, now, let me show you where you're really standing. And you look up in heaven and you're seated on the throne with Christ next to the Father. And that never changed, no matter how much Satan knocked you down in this little sort of playpen down here. In the the throne room of heaven, your standing is secure. It wasn't touched. 
Because it was never your righteousness. It was never your strength. It was always the righteousness and the strength of your champion. And that's why when we talk about the armor, I wanted to take a sermon and talk about this champion. Because sometimes when we talk about the armor, it's almost like, okay, we got to strap it on, which we do. And we got to use it, which we do, but it's almost like it's our own little armor and we get to figure out how to use it. And if we don't really know how to use it, we're going to get slammed out there. And the answer is no, 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 no. This isn't your armor at all. This is the armor of your champion and your champion has already fought the battle for you. He is fighting the battle with you and, and, the, and the outcome is secure because whatever happens to the sun is going to happen to you. Because God has indissolvably joined you in a union with his son. That's the most encouraging truth. Now, folks, if you walk away from here and you're discouraged or you're defeated or you're like, man, I, I just, I, I hear you, Pastor Sam. I hear about all these battles and I'm in the middle of it and I can't seem to crawl out. You need to know something. You have a champion who is standing with you, who has already fought for you. And no matter what comes this week, no matter what temptation assails you, even the ones that are going to overcome you, your champion has already secured your righteousness. Your champion has already secured your status. And your champion has already secured your victory. If God be for us, who, who can be against us? And the answer to that is what? No one. No one. And we could say it this way. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So no matter who you are this morning, no matter what you brought in, no matter what you dragged in, no matter what arrow you got sticking somewhere, you have a champion who's already won. And he stands before the Father, and the Father looks at you, and he says, now there, that one is my beloved son. That one is my beloved daughter. Because you are accepted on the basis of the righteousness of this great champion. Lord, thank you for this word. Lord, I feel so inadequate. I feel like I haven't even touched it. I pray that you would help us to see with eyes that your spirit enlightens beyond anything I could have said today just how amazing and astonishing this champion is. And what he has really done for us. And, and Lord, that it's not just a theological truth that we file away, that, that it really becomes the strength of our everyday life. Lord, we give you great praise for this. And we are so thankful. Because we belong to you. Maybe you're here this morning and you've suffered a great defeat. And you're wondering if you can ever find your way back. This message was for you. Because you were never lost to start with once you were saved. The Lord always helped you and does in the palm of his hand. And it was never your righteousness, ever your righteousness, that brought all the favor from God the scripture talks about. It was always the righteousness of Christ. So stop listening to the lie that Satan wants to tell you every day and strap on the truth of the righteousness of Christ and be encouraged. Maybe you're here today and you need some help. Maybe you're caught up and you're under heavy fire 
and you just need some help, well, come and see one of our pastors. We'd be happy to talk. One of our leaders here, just another brother or sister in Christ. Doesn't have to be a pastor. Just come and catch one of us and say, hey, I need to talk. If we can't, we'll, we'll line you up with someone who can talk. And maybe you're here and you're saying, you know, I, I'm not sure I'm even part of this army. This righteousness that you keep talking about, I'm not sure I really have it. But I'm beginning to understand that I really need it and I need to become a Christian. You catch one of us after church this morning and just say, hey, I'd like to talk some more about that. And we'll be happy to do that. Lord, we commend ourselves to your care and to your grace. We ask that you would take your word and strengthen us by it. In Jesus' name, amen.